Hi, uh, welcome back to uh, my podcast, Wokademia, this time with uh, Phil Magnus. He's a senior research faculty and research and education director at the American Institute for Economic Research. He had a career as a uh, professor at a number of universities, a PhD, I think, from uh, George Mason, right? Yeah. Uh, and then moved over into the into AIER and is now, I would say, one of the top experts on critical social justice without being a critical social justice person, which is an odd distinction, (laughs) but um, that's where we are. And as usual, I'll reiterate my land acknowledgement, which I've settled on. Yes, we should give universities back to whatever native tribes we can find because there's no way they would do anything worse with the university (laughs) than we are doing. So um, with that, because we're supposed to do a land acknowledgement, but I don't really buy ours. So, but that's that's where I am on this stuff. This week. So uh, without further ado, uh, Phil, thanks so much for coming. And uh, maybe we just jump in. Like, what is this stuff? Can you give us a definition roughly of what critical race theory, queer theory, critical social right. justice or this whole blob um, really is? Yeah, well, that's a a difficult question because they play, and I would argue intentionally, word games with the terms that they use for themselves. uh, um, Critical race theory is the classic example. Um, Up until a few months ago when it burst onto the national scene uh, as a uh, like a public debate subject, it was something that uh, that was indeed uh, proprietary jargon in university departments, and they were proud about uh, announcing themselves as supporters of critical race theory. And the uh, the trumpeting charge was that we need critical race theory education and all manner of other academic research venues. Uh, as soon as it became a controversial scene, they slipped into denial mode and said, uh, well, critical race theory is something that's only taught in advanced graduate seminars. And uh, if you don't uh, practice it, you don't understand it. And it's it's really obscure. And this, this is like a, a fake culture wars thing that the right has pushed on this society. But uh, to attempt to define it. So if we go back historically, There is a branch of um, philosophical thought uh, that emerged in the 1930s, and this uh, came out of uh, mostly theorists at the University of Frankfurt. Uh, Max Horkheimer is uh, probably the foremost in in defining the term, but he's associated with uh, Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno. Uh, What they attempted to do is they said there is a system uh, or a, a branch of philosophical thought that they refer to as critical theory, and critical theory contrasts with what they call traditional theory. Traditional theory is uh, rationality, it's empiricism, it's scientific discovery uh, from a claim of uh, objective analysis, uh, whereas critical theory seeks to interrogate that for an explicitly uh, political, or they even say emancipatory reason. So the uh, the gist of the claim that was made by people like Horkheimer is that traditional theories, descriptive theories, are really uh, tools to prop up existing power disparities, prop up the haves versus the have-nots. And if this sounds kind of familiar, it's because they were derivatives of Marxism. Uh, it's a, a branch of Marxism. It's not the same as like the Leninist revolutionary Marxist school, so that were very active at the time, but uh, it was a, a, a theory of Marxism that views uh, society as defined by 
struggles between the powered and the disempowered. And they say that the powered have imprinted themselves upon philosophical systems of learning, of education, of culture in ways that prop up the status quo, those currently in power, the haves, uh, at the exploitative uh, uh, cost to the have-nots. So a critical theory is one that seeks to disrupt that power relationship, to overturn it, to emancipate the have-nots. And the call there is that... Um, Activism must be enlisted explicitly as a tool on behalf of the have-nots, uh, including activism through academia. Uh, now, this started as a class-based uh, divide because, again, there, there are Marxists in that sense, and critical race theory is an adaptation of that framework, the critical theory framework, to race where race is seen as the dividing line between power disparities, not the only one, but uh, the major unit of analysis and that type of research. And basically what we have in critical race theory today uh, is an outcropping of critical theory more broadly, uh, but with the same economic and political ends. It's uh, ends toward uh, overturning what they see as systems of oppression, uh, not only racial oppression, uh, not only discriminatory institutions, which do in fact exist and are a uh, pervasive problem in history. Uh, so no one's denying that, uh, but they're saying that uh, racism is so thoroughly ingrained, not only in legal structures, uh, but they also extend it to say uh, market economics. Capitalism is supposedly an offshoot of racist power dynamics and therefore must be overturned, uh, therefore must have a uh, prescriptive policy of people that they're seeking. So uh, critical theory and critical race theory in general, they tend toward a certain brand or certain type of, of very far left wing political advocacy as the uh, prescribed and openly uh, pursued solution to what they see as inequities in society. So would it, is it safe to say that if you are a practitioner of critical race theorist, you are primarily engaged in activism. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and they and they they see not only is their scholarship as serving this, but uh, in some of the, the the more extreme cases, they want credit toward tenure for being an activist mm -hmm. instead of publishing in a journal. They say, "Well, I led a social justice cause for for X, uh, and because I'm changing society for the better, I should get credit uh, toward my tenure clock um, on that." And that's an interesting, you know, this sort of raises some interesting questions at especially public universities of, you know, if we're supposed to give autonomy to the university and then the university turns around and funds people who are engaged in explicit activism, if the government were actually directly funding, knowingly directly funding political activism, that's very much outside of the American tradition. So this does seem like you run into some issues if you're funneling taxpayer and tuition dollars at a public institution into, and it's, it, it's almost direct political activism, right? It's a set of policies that have to be brought about, right? That's absolutely the case. And, you know, I go back to a basic principle of public finance, of anything that's coming out of a legislature that's paid for out of the public treasury, is that in a democratic system of government, the people get to say through their legislature what that money is spent on. Yeah. We, just had a, we had a vote in the faculty council saying absolutely not the legislature, neither the legislature nor the board of regents uh, should have any say in whether or not critical race theory is used as an approach at, um, at a university. And that, you know, do they have a theory for what, do they, do they have, does their system allow anything that would allow the people providing the funding 
to pull back from providing this or, or does their system say everyone must fund this as much as we want? I, I don't think they even take it that far in having a systematized justification for it. It's more an expectation. Uh, so uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist James M. Buchanan wrote uh, quite a bit about this in the 1960s and 70s when some of the Vietnam protests were bursting onto the scene and campus. And that was a much uh, stabler political time in the universities, uh, even compared to today. Uh, so it kind of shows how, how far we've gotten. But Buchanan's observation was, is, as long as we're accepting the principle that uh, the public is an investor in higher education, and it's being, not only that, it's being sold to the public uh, on the grounds that there are going to be returns to society in general from the fact that we are subsidizing higher education. You know, the classic version of this is that uh, uh, we put public monies into universities because it leads to scientific advances, it leads to medical advances, it leads to a more educated populace, it, uh, it gives our children and our grandchildren a better future because there's training and skills that uh, they use for life and makes them more educated citizens. These are kind of like the, uh, uh, the public facing justifications for higher education. And that's how it's always pitched when they go to the legislature and ask for, for more money. Uh, the problem or the tension that emerges, and Buchanan's quite clear on this, is if you're, if you're selling the public using that rhetoric, but you're turning around and taking resources that they've given to you as taxpayers and launching political initiatives, social justice initiatives through the university system itself, uh, you're basically being duplicitous. And Buchanan has this great line where he says that uh, some of the more activist uh, university professors, they, they approach the taxpayer as if the taxpayer's only job is to walk by the ivy walls of campus and throw bags of money over to the other side and act as if uh, there's no right of the taxpayer to scrutinize or question how that money's being spent. And I think this is just a fundamental betrayal of what it means to have a uh, democratically representative participatory democracy. Yeah, I'm puzzled by the fact that um, many legislators in conservative states seem to have taken Buchanan's comment as more of a suggestion than a warning. Right. That's exactly what we keep doing. Right. Bags of money keep showering on this place, and they are not remotely shy about what they're doing. I mean, you know, they, they're taking that money and building you know, videos to teach critical race theory concepts to four-year-olds, and yet the bags of money just keep coming. Keep yeah. I, 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 I don't have the, have have conservatives just sort of bought the story or I, I, I can't quite figure this one out. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a, um, a, a historical component to this. Uh, so Buchanan, again, he made his warning about this. Uh, you know, one of his lessons here is we need to heed the taxpayers or else eventually they're going to cut off, uh, they're turned off the spigot. Um, people will say, wait a minute, universities are misappropriating our money. And he thinks that's going to be a bad thing. He thinks that's, that's uh, one of the areas where the university system is most at risk, is if the public finally gets fed up and through their legislatures, which they can do, votes for people that are going to cut off uh, massive amounts of appropriation and spending. Uh, and he's writing about this at a time when the university was politicized, but not nearly as politicized as it is today. And if you go back in the survey data, uh, universities have always kind of been to the center left. Uh, there, there was a plurality uh, 
of the faculty that sat on the left. And it's the biggest of the different factions, but it was still a pretty stable plurality. And from the earliest surveys that we have in the 1960s to about 2000, 2002, thereabouts, uh, the political left probably consistently controlled about 45% of the faculty. Uh, and it's remarkably stable over that period. Like you can compare 1969 and I think 2001, and the surveys have barely shifted uh, even maybe a percentage point or two of faculty who identify on the left. Something changed in the mid 2000s uh, to where faculty on the left started only hiring other faculty on the left that agreed with them. And it squeezed out not only conservatives, but also moderates, so people that fell in between, or libertarians that have a foot in both worlds. Um, so we went from 45% of the faculty in uh, the early 2000s being identified on the political left to today, it, it's probably around two thirds of the faculty. So it's a clear outright majority or even super majority in some cases. And that's all come at the expense of the minorities uh, factions, the conservatives and moderates. Uh, those have both been in rapid, sharp decline ever since the early 2000s. Remarkable that your moderate faction is, are, is now a small minority. As soon as that happens in any institution, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, and it's interesting, this purge has become, you know, there seems to have been this purge since 2000, and now it's, you know, it was sort of an informal purge, but now they're sort of building in rules like, we have these DEI policies, which are, you know, I don't know what you think. My perspective on these DEI policies, when you really read them, is they're almost like pledges to critical race theory, right? Like, Absolutely. You know, we now have a public universities, this requirement that you pledge allegiance to this set of political activist views that would never, pass, like the state of Texas legislature is never going to pass a law saying, yeah, all faculty must adhere to critical race theory, right? right. But, but, right. But, but their agents do. And you know, what do you think the reaction to something like those DEI policies ought to be? Well, uh, you know, I, th I think the, these policies are distinctive because they're coming heavily out of the humanities. And you may ask the question, like, what does the astronomy department gain from this? What does the astronomy department need to do? Why do they have that same statement as a, uh, a hiring requirement? Uh, but it also kind of harkens back to, you know, in the 1950s, there used to be pledges to oppose communism that you had to sign to become a university professor. Uh, so it's the same tactic that we now decry from the 1950s used for a different political perspective. Uh, and they, they, now, in retrospect, though, uh, and this is this gets maybe into the some tensions with uh, on academic freedom. Absolutely. You know, this idea that we should expel anyone from a university that doesn't embrace critical race theory seems pretty extreme. The idea that we should not let people in the university who are committed to breaking down the university and use it for political activism seems like a different thing. Like if we hadn't let all these communists into universities, right. <laughs> maybe we'd still have a semblance of academic freedom here. Well, so do you see there's, that? There's the, the tension. And I, I think this comes from a, a, a change in perspective on the left. You know, the old political left of the mid 20th century was a liberal left. It was the classical ACLU that respected free speech, respected the diversity of opinion. Yes, they wanted to be 
the dominant faction. They wanted to be in the majority themselves, but they recognized, hey, uh, it's actually a more vibrant and better university environment to also have uh, um, a group of conservatives on campus representing that perspective. Uh, they have things to teach us. We have things to teach them. We're going to get good debate out of it. And that's where the, uh, the philosophy of academic freedom that's uh, traditionally championed with the universities comes out of as kind of a mid-century that it's good to have a diversity of perspectives uh, and we want faculty to uh, to feel free within that range of uh, of perspectives to uh, advocate for their views but it also comes with an implicit contract that they're also going to respect other views that diverge from their own that shifted into a hegemonic territory where the political left today especially in the humanities uh, wants a monolithic department where everyone agrees with them. So I'm curious about that. Do you think that was a legitimately held belief on the political left, or do you think that was just a something they held for convenience to try to argue okay. for allowing more communists at universities? Because if you go back to the history of the ACLU, sure, there sure. these famous <laughs> interviews where the guy was like, well, of course we want civil liberties now, right, so right. communism in place, but obviously once we have communism, we should eliminate civil liberties so we don't have the uh, reactionary. So is this, you know, and we've seen the ACLU itself drift away from those principles that used to adhere to. We saw that especially during COVID, or or, um, but, or return to its original principles. Or return to its original. As soon as we have power, yeah. we should suppress everyone else's. Right. So it, was this ever something that the left legitimately held as a view? Or I, I, I am a argue. I, I would argue that yes, some on the left, and including some of the uh, uh, the more prominent mid-century intellectual liberals did adhere to that. Uh, And the evidence I point to this is we see some of the critical race theory left uh, today, they're turning on and they're eating their own. Uh, Well, that's not really, I mean, that that just suggests that the people who are excited to watch the critical race theorists drive us out of universities, Mm -hmm. maybe just didn't realize how far they'd go. I don't remember seeing it like when this purge started in 2000, I don't remember any effort by sort of center left or these classical what you would call the classical leftists pushing back against the purge of conservatives. Like I can't think of a single, but maybe except Alan Dershowitz, I can't think of right, an example right. of anyone on the left pushing back when they started driving conservatives yeah. out. I think it's almost at the point where by the time they realized that this was underway, and not only is it gone for conservatives, it's coming for them too now, uh, it was too late. Well, but okay. This, yeah. I guess that's where I, <laughs> that's, that's. I guess our disagreement is that my, I don't get the sense that they were bothered when it came. It, it wasn't like they got. They, they knew they were coming for conservatives, right? And, right. And they thought they could have their little center left plus crazy leftist uh, group, and yay, we've purged the conservatives. It just seems like they misunderstood that the crazy leftist would um, would also turn using that yeah. very consciously, yeah. like you know, loony Marxist is the right way to describe these people. I think. Um, you know, I, I still, I, I've never, never saw any indication that it bothered anyone on the left that the conservatives were being purged. Yeah, they didn't want to get themselves purged, but that's sure, just self-interest, sure. right? right? So right. I, I, yeah, I wonder yeah. if there is even. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting historical case study. Um, I, I do know some of the, the debates that played out. So when the faculty survey literature really came into its own, that was in the early 70s, and that was Marty Lipset and Everett Ladd started analyzing some of these survey data. And the argument that was made at the time, uh, so Ladd and Lipset were concerned that even a plurality on the left had become as strong as it had, and they were kind of raising the alarms and saying, hey, we need a diverse intellectual scene. 
And the answer at the time was, well, uh, even though we're a plurality, we do have a diverse intellectual scene. Uh, you have your uh, minority faction. Maybe conservatives have uh, 20 to 30 percent of the faculty, whereas we have 45 percent of the faculty. But we aren't here to purge you. We, uh, there was a, actually a very aggressive PR effort to say that um, even though the faculty leaned left, it wasn't so far to the left that it was going to be a problem. There was still room on campus for conservatives. But the moment and, somebody comes up for promotion with a regression that says exactly something, <laughs> the whole left, not just you know the the, the center left, you know the, the dean of the College of Liberal Arts, everybody piles on to try to deny promotion to anyone with a like slight conservative. And that's no, absolutely so. the the case we live in today. Uh, um, and, and this seems you know it's it's these old school leftists were very happy to pile on. Yeah. I mean, it served them. Yeah. So I, yeah. But now, but, but now it's back to the problem. You know, the critical theory types do turn and now they're eating their own. Yeah. I just, I, I, I can't muster a lot of sympathy when they turn sure, on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm not terribly sympathetic yeah. to them. Um, but, but I would, you know, if given the choice, I, I'd rather have that intellectual climate that existed. 20 to 30 years ago in the universities versus what we have today, which is kind of the aftermath of the purge. But was that a sustainable environment? Could we have, and this ties into sort of modern efforts to reform, can we have an academic environment where 20 to 30% say, adhere to this activist critical social justice system where it doesn't end up ruining everything because it yeah. seems like they, they, they seem so focused on grabbing the levers of power if we have That's them exactly. here is there any way to have like a, an institution that has those people and us or is that just not possible? so the, the survey data show it was a pretty stable equilibrium from about the 1960s to 2000 uh, they didn't really move all that much in the uh, the shares of the university system. And, and it really actually kind of mapped uh, pretty accurately upon uh, the student body and the general public. This is where I think the, the real difficulty and danger is emerging is the public has not shifted to the left the way that the university faculty have. So there's a widening gap between the two groups right now. And it's also a widening gap between incoming freshmen and the, and the professors that are teaching them, uh, which is, you know, I see that as a real problem. Uh, I think the other contributing factor that's that's really driven this is the job market glut, especially in the humanities. Uh, the fact that they overproduced PhDs uh, far higher rates than any other disciplines. Uh, you know, there's more English professors uh, or English PhDs that are issued in a given year uh, than almost any other major department. Uh, and also the hiring actually exceeds most other departments. I showed this in, in the 2019 book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower has the data there. And uh, although English always claims it's be- uh, beleaguered as a discipline, as do all the other humanities, they're actually some of the largest departments on any campus uh, for a reason. But they produce so many PhDs in excess of the jobs there. What happened is that political ideology and signaling uh, that you're woke, signaling that you're committed to these social justice causes became a rationing mechanism for increasingly scarce numbers of of academic jobs. Uh, So whereas maybe in the 1980s or even uh, 1990s, they were willing to throw a, a bone where one hire out of five goes to someone who's not of the far left, now it's, it's kind of like a bunker mentality is we must take care of our own. Uh, we must only hire people that agree with us. And any 
retiring professor, when we replace them, that faculty line gets assigned to someone who's a political activist. All right. And yeah, so we get these political activists. What is the what would you say that the quality if, if we're selecting on how devoted you are to political activism, we're not selecting on research quality, for example. No. What type of quality do you think we're getting as far as if we wanted to judge this stuff by traditional academic standards, where does it fit in the, um, I mean, I know you've done some work. I, I would go so far as to say that uh, the majority of uh, material that appears in most humanities journals today is unintelligible political dreck. Mm. It is uh, calls for activism that's light on evidence, light on empirical demonstration, and very heavy on just circular reaffirmations of uh, prior assumptions. And we, we also see the other sign of this, and I think that this is probably the more alarming to me, is there's a greater tolerance today than even 15 or 20 years ago, uh, not only for bad, low rigor, weak work, but for intentionally deceptive work that affirms a proper political position, a position that's favored on the left. And I think that's, that's a really dangerous position to be in because what it means is that um, the faculty that are in place that were tradition uh, traditionally the enforcers of standards through peer review or in standards to uh, to stop plagiarism and academic fraud when it was caught uh, now are willing to look the other way provided that the person who engages in misconduct is affirming a proper political belief uh, not only that they'll, they'll even promote them they'll give them tenure so this is the the the, the the quote that has most stuck in my mind from some stuff that's happened at UT and some, some training that is given to faculty by some of these people, don't let facts get in the way of effectiveness. Oh, that's absolutely the case. So the, 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 it seems like built into the philosophy, and I, I think this may trace back to this postmodern yeah. approach. Yeah. Th they seem to be attached to this idea that it is admirable to misrepresent and even just outright lie if you promote the interest of marginalized groups. Is that a fair capture? I think that's the de facto practice. Um, you'd really press several of them. You'd have to press very hardly to get them to openly admit that, except for the most extreme, uh, deep in the jargon. Uh, I guess here's another example of it. There's uh, There's been a movement, especially at top academic journals, they, they engage in what they say, decolonization of the journals. We subsidize decolonization of syllabuses with taxpayer dollars. Exactly. Texas, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Get a grant for that. Yeah. And the whole notion here is that we must set aside the standards of academic rigor to elevate uh, a greater representation of what they call historically marginalized peoples and groups, uh, which gets into the race, class, and gender or the uh, uh, kind of the triumvirate that they focus on there. Uh, but it really does come down to a rationalization that we're going to relax standards in order to, well, well, they claim they're doing it on behalf of marginalized groups, but what they're really trying to do is squeeze in political perspectives that otherwise would have been caught during peer review and said, no, this is just ideological hackery. This isn't a contribution uh, to science or a contribution to, uh, to, to understanding and learning. It's just political advocacy. And I think what it means as a de facto uh, uh, reality in the, uh, the academy today is if you have a far left-wing perspective and you can dress that up in the language of oppression and marginalization, you can take that to even the top journals in many fields 
and uh, present it as political as a uh, academic research uh, through political advocacy, and you will have a very easy route to publication. If you argue against that, or even if you have a depoliticized uh, position that is trying to avoid the weeds of, uh, of these ideological debates, you're going to have a harder route to publication. And then on top of that, even if you engage in intentional misconduct, uh, misrepresentation of sources, uh, quote editing for, uh, this is really problematic among historians, and I've caught several, uh, I've even gone to presses and filed ethics complaint and said, uh, here's the original quote, here's the edited version that this person wrote in a journal side by side. You can see where they deleted words to change uh, the meaning of, of what they were discussing. And, uh, you know, the journals will, uh, will just kind of wave you off and say, uh, we're not interested in dealing with that. Uh, yeah, whereas I mean, 20 years ago, that would have been grounds for a retraction of an article. And this is not sort of, open, like, you, you've documented these sort of quote by and then the, the the conjecture that you could just put any nonsense out there and get it in if it has it. that's not really a conjecture right we, we, oh, we it, had three uh, people you know we alan sokol started this thing of like exactly we had three random people put together easily a tenure pack right out of just like intentional nonsense and then there's yeah. been some follow-ons on that so we've sort of demonstrated that this is a you know that there's, there's kind of direct evidence that this is all kind of politicized nonsense, right? Like, absolutely the case. Um, yeah, throughout, you know, a number of these departments and even education schools, which exactly. are exactly. very consequential, those, that, that, that seems, so what do we do? So how do you fix this? <laughs> so it, it is a very complex problem uh, that we are facing. What I would urge, uh, you know, people that are talking about policy responses, to uh, this problem. We, we, we know the problem exists. We know the universities have shifted dramatically to the left. And in doing so, they've misallocated public resources to uh, purposes that are very much um, divergent from their historical mission as a university and often at odds with what the public should even be spending money on. That subsidized careers for activism and activism of very specific type. Uh, but I think we need to be intelligent about the way that we tackle it. Uh, this is where I think we get into some of the trouble. Uh, uh, so, so some of these state legislatures that are putting forth bills to, to ban instruction in critical race theory by just saying uh, we're going to declare that this is uh, something that will not be in textbooks. Uh, well, first off, I don't think it's a very effective strategy because they just change the terms. Uh, they'll, they'll adopt a new term and place a critical race theory and continue on the same thing. Uh, the second, it opens the vulnerability to uh, uh, the accusation that you're engaged in censorship. Uh, where I do think that there is room to tackle this problem, uh, number one, the humanities that seem to be uh, the bastion of extreme politicized research and faculty activism right now are way too large at most university systems. Uh, they far exceed the demand for degrees in the humanities, and the way they've achieved this is they've worked their way into the general education curriculum as mandatory classes. Everyone has to take X number of semesters of English history and philosophy uh, to graduate. And uh, I think this is actually really insidious because it ties into the student debt crisis. You're basically making 18 and 19-year-olds <coughs> excuse me, uh, pay for classes 
that are basically in politicized subject matters that are of next to no use to them for their careers and their education. Uh, we even have evidence that they don't even retain any of the information that's taught to them in these classes. Uh, it's just uh, completely in services of a jobs program for activist faculty. Uh, so and if, have you seen the, the Ohio State has a, like, you can start seeing the seems to be growing more and they're even going explicitly to having the social justice requirements. Well, absolutely. And we have multiple social justice requirements through our flag system. And it, yeah, yes. so, and, and there's nothing, the argument will be that academic freedom requires us to leave this stuff in place, but that doesn't make any sense, right? Like you, uh, not, you know, not when they're requiring it because they're actually forcing students to hand over money and tuition payments right. to take classes that they don't want and don't need, and all evidence seems to point to that doesn't actually improve their critical thinking skills. It doesn't teach them any uh, valuable skill that they uh, impart to, uh, to their careers or any other point later in life. Uh, there's a great study, it's uh, uh, academically addressed by Aram and Roxa, mm -hmm. and what they do is they use uh, entering freshman uh, scores on standardized testing to, to see where they stand on reading, writing skills, critical thinking, and then they uh, compare that to a, um, a, a test given at the end of sophomore year, uh, two years in, and they find that these courses, all these mandatory courses that we're making people take, uh, really do not improve any of the skills that they claim to deliver on. Uh, what they do end up uh, causing to happen is students have to pay large amounts of tuition on needless, useless classes that all go toward providing a sustained, cushy, comfortable career to political activist faculty. And I think that's insidious because you're taking money from economically precarious students, 18 and 19 year olds that are not in the best financial situation. They're straight out of high school. Uh, they're probably getting loans to go to college and you're giving it to like these mid-career tenured PhDs that are making 70, 80, 90, $100,000 a year uh, and a very cushy job. So it's an income transfer away from students to mid-career upper middle-class faculty. Uh, which I think there's a, a deep pervasive injustice in doing that, uh, especially when it's on the basis of only ensuring that they have classes that have butts and seats uh, to make sure that they have a continuation of their job. Okay. Yeah. So that would be, you know, sounds like a good starting point. Let's get rid of this right. stuff and then see what happens. Like we don't need to keep hiring more English professors to teach English classes that don't teach anything right. resembling right. English. Yeah. That was, well, maybe we can get started on that. Well, um, thanks. For, I think that runs through our half hour. So thanks so much for joining. And uh, again, Phil Magnus, uh, this was great. Um, and I look forward to seeing you all on the next Academia. Excellent.